0: Welcome to the LSE events podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences.
1: A very warm welcome uh, to all of you to the virtual London School of Economics. My name is uh, Jonathan Roberts and I'm the teaching director at LSE's Marshall Institute. At the Marshall Institute, we explore how to maximise the impact of social entrepreneurship and philanthropy. And one of the ways we do that is to think about how you can create and take opportunities to make the world a better place. This event celebrates a remarkable book that shows us how to make the very most of those opportunities. We're here to mark the LSE launch of the international paperback version of Dr. Christian Bush's book, connect the dots, the art and science of creating good luck. Um, I've had the the good fortune to read this book, uh, the good luck indeed to read this book. And it is a remarkable piece of work that shows us how we can navigate the unexpected in order to create and exploit opportunity. I don't know about you, but I don't tend to think of luck as something scientific or something that has uh, a method, but Christian has developed a science-based framework so that we can all, as he puts it, actively develop our own smart luck. It's a guide to grabbing the unexpected with both hands and making the very most of it. As well as that, I have to say it's a cracking good read, uh, really, really well written and full of fascinating stories, so I do urge you to uh, to take a look at this book. Let me explain what we're going to do uh, tonight. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to hand over to Christian, who is going to present the core idea at the heart of the book. And then Christian is going to welcome uh, a remarkable panel of um, expert leaders from very diverse fields. And they will discuss how uh, they experience this idea and how all of us can create that smart luck in a world of what feels like increasing uh, uncertainty. So uh, after that, uh, towards the end, there will be a question and answer uh, function, uh, which I will moderate. Uh, Please do use the question and answer button that you will find uh, on Zoom. And I will take a look at those questions and direct the best of them to the panel or to Christian. Um, So, um, that is more or less it. I just want to mention to the hashtag for this session, which is LSE uh, Connect the Dots. The event will be recorded, and as long as there are no technical difficulties, it would also be available as a podcast. So it's my very uh, great pleasure to welcome, first of all, Dr. uh, Christian Bush. Christian is the director of the CGA Global Economy Programme at New York University. Uh, and we're very privileged to have him as a visiting fellow here at the LSE Marshall Institute. He's the co-founder of Leaders on Purpose and the Sandbox Network, former co-director of LSE's Innovation Lab, and also a member of the World Economic Forum's, uh, Expert, for, World Economic Forum's Expert Forum.
2: So, Christian, after that lengthy introduction, over to you. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan, for the uh, wonderful introduction. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. It's wonderful to be here with you today and with such a wonderful panel. And I can't wait to have that conversation uh, going. Before we dive into the panel, I'd love to very briefly set the stage and talk a little bit about what is it that we can do to have more serendipity more of this smart luck in our life what does our research show and then we have four exceptional panelists who embody a lot of these ideas and who intuitively do a lot of this and i wish i had uh, uh, you know known them uh, much earlier so that we we could have uh, written much more about uh, them as well which we certainly will do in in the future but for now i'd love to take you on a journey uh, a journey of connecting the dots the the art and science of creating Good luck. So to give you a bit of context, I grew up in Heidelberg in Germany, uh, where, you know, I was kicked out of high school when I was uh, 15, 16, had to repeat a year, probably healthy, unofficial world record of how many dustbins you can knock over on your way to school when you're driving. And then one day wasn't so lucky anymore and uh, crashed into four part cars, uh, all cars completely destroyed, including my own. And I won't forget the policeman who came to the scene and he was like, Oh my God, he's still alive. And that idea that I was supposed to be dead, that stuck with me. And I asked myself all these weird questions. You know, If I would have died, who would have come to my funeral? Who would have actually cared? Was it all worth it? And at that point, I had mostly depressing answers. And so it took me on this intense search for meaning, trying to figure out what is this all about? What, what is life all about? And I started reading this amazing book, uh, highly recommended for times like these, uh, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning which is all about the question of how do we find meaning in the toughest of circumstances? And when reading it, what I realized is what gives me a lot of meaning is connecting ideas, connecting people, and the spark that comes from these kind of uh, connections among people and and ideas. And so it took me on this journey as community builder, entrepreneur, and later into academia. And what I found fascinating on this journey is that the most inspiring, purpose-driven, successful people they seem to have something in common, which is that they intuitively cultivate serendipity. They see a little bit more in unexpected moments, and then they connect the dots and turn that into positive outcomes. And so, there was the fascination of saying, is there a science to this? You know, of course, there's an art that's beautiful, and it's become a life force and a a daily skill, but is it also something we can study? And so, over the last kind of decade now, I've been very focused on what is the science-based framework for cultivating serendipity, And this book uh, focuses on this and tries to figure out uh, what can we do about it. It's especially important at the moment, I feel, because, you know, we all face uncertainty, individual transitions, right? We kind of transitioning into different modes of work and life. Uh, There's societal and environmental challenges that we can't plan out for the next 50 years. And so building a muscle for the unexpected, building a muscle for the ability to cultivate serendipity uh, becomes an absolute key life skill in a world full of uncertainty. Uh, Being a German, I am, I, of course, have have a a, a PowerPoint slide here to illustrate this. Um, And let's just see. I'm going to put this up here just to to briefly dive into when we talk about serendipity. What are we talking about? And so um, here on the upper left, you know, uh, imagine you have erratic hand movements like I do. uh, Then you spill a lot of coffee. And so imagine you're in a coffee shop. You spill coffee over someone accidentally. They look at you annoyedly but you sense there might be something there. You don't know what it is. You just sense there might be something there. Now you have two options, right? Option number one is you just say, I'm so sorry, here's a napkin. You walk outside and you think, ah, what could have happened had I spoken with a person? Option number two, you start a conversation and that person turns out to become the love of your life, your co-founder, your next business partner, you name it. The point is our reaction to the unexpected. Us making the accident meaningful shapes a lot of the eventual Outcome. Another example here is R Labs. It's a wonderful social enterprise in the Cape Flats in Cape Town where we do a lot of work. Um, They, you know, when COVID happens, uh, they do usually uh, in-person sessions around education, and they realized, oh my God, we can't do this in person anymore. But hey, what if we break that into nano courses, so very small packaged courses, and do it via WhatsApp? And so they developed a WhatsApp-based course that now actually they're selling to companies around the world, and it became a key capability for them. Uh, here, uh, of course, this, the four exceptional speakers that we have today, we'll dive deeper into their background in a second. Uh, they will share some, some serendipity uh, stories with us. But before that, here's a couple of more examples of serendipity. Any ideas what this might be? If you want to use the, the chat function uh, what, or the Q&A function, what do you think on the, on the lower right? Any ideas what, what that might be? It's usually a good sign if, if you don't, uh, because so a couple of decades ago, some researchers were giving people medication against angina, the, the, the heart's uh, pain, and they realized some unexpected movement in male participants' trousers. And so what would we usually do? We'll probably say, oh, my God, that's embarrassing. Oh, my God, that's something that you know, we should get rid of that kind of quote unquote, side effect. They did the opposite. They said, you know what? That's unexpected, but there's probably a lot of men in the world who might have a problem in that department. So why don't we develop a medication around this? And this is how Viagra became one of the best selling medications and emerged serendipitously out of this interaction. This is the generic version of, of Viagra here. Any ideas what this might be here on the upper right? Any ideas what, uh, what that might be? Um, any ideas what this might be? And thank you Kimberly for sharing the creation of port wine Uh, Very interesting. Kim in Atlanta. Thank you for for sharing that. By the way, please do share your insights about Serenity. I'm sure a lot of you might have that in your own life. So please do share in the chat or in the Q&A function whenever something comes to mind that you would like to share with a group. I'll try to pick up as much as I can uh, from that. Thank you for sharing that. So so this here, uh, Stefan says it might be hand cream. Um, Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Um, Yeah. Then chicken fryer is another guess. So so this is a potato washing machine. And the potato washing machine, a couple of years ago, a company in China that produces washing machines, refrigerators, they received calls from farmers. And the farmers told them, your crappy washing machine is always breaking down. Well, why is the washing machine breaking down? Well, we're trying to wash our potatoes in it, and it doesn't seem to work. So what would we usually do? We would probably try to, quote unquote, educate the customer, right? We would probably try to say, well, you know, we built this because it's for clothes, so wash your clothes. They did the opposite. They said, you know what, that's unexpected, but there's probably a lot of farmers in China who might have a similar problem. So why don't we build in a dirt filter and make it a potato washing machine? And that's how the potato washing machine became a product. Now, we mapped hundreds and hundreds of examples of serendipity around the world across different contexts. And what's the beautiful thing about it is it's not just like bad luck, right? Bad luck is something that just happens to us, right? Being born into a loving family, things like this. That's the kind of things we can't pick. That's the kind of things that that cause a lot of societal inequality, right? But serendipity is the smart luck that we create ourselves by how we cope with the unexpected. And so here, what all of these examples and, and all these other examples have in common is that there's always some kind of serendipity trigger, right? So there's um, you know, someone spilling coffee over someone, there's uh, farmers calling up and saying, your washing machine is breaking down, uh, there's, there's, there's unexpectedly, you can't do in-person classes anymore. That's a serendipity trigger. That's an unexpected random thing that happens. But then we have to do something with it. We have to connect the dots and imbue meaning in it to, to, to actually turn that accident meaningful. And then a lot of times it takes tenacity, right? It's not enough to just bump into that potential love interest We need to go on a couple of dates to actually turn it into serendipity later on and so a lot of times serendipity has a long incubation time something you know you might have ran into someone at a conference 20 years ago and only now you read a book and realize oh my god we should set up a company together about exactly this now there's organizational conditions we can create for this right we can create um, the organizational enablers and constraints that make it more or less likely to have that happen but the key thing is once we see serendipity as a process of spotting and connecting dots We can create more potential dots, and I'll talk more about how we can do that by, for example, casting hooks. We can learn how to connect the dots better, and we can build the tenacity to actually follow through with it. And so it makes it very influenceable, uh, how we can cope with randomness and, and do something with it. Now, the problem is we tend to miss serendipity all the time because we might not see the potential serendipity trigger. We might not be able to connect the dots or not have the tenacity to actually go through with it. And so there's so much potentiality, but a lot of times we don't tend to see it. I just ask you, you know, like tomorrow when you go outside, start looking for money in the street, and I guarantee you, you will start finding money in the street. Mostly pennies in my case, so it didn't really change my lifestyle. But once you open your mind to the positively unexpected, it starts to happen more often. That's the same, you know, that's why kids find more money in the street than adults, because they still have that kind of beautiful, curious, open mind uh, to it. Now, what are some of the themes that, that, we, that we can derive from this? What are some ways of how we can study serendipity? A lot of times that's experiments, right? So you put people into exactly the same situation and see how they react to the unexpected. Some create serendipity, others do not. And and a lot of other ways that are a whole conversation for itself. Of course, we want to be aware there's a lot of structural constraints, inequality, and so on. So people have very different starting levels for the potential of serendipity that could be. But we've seen it work across different contexts, especially also in resource-constrained Uh, settings. Now, what are some ways to cultivate serendipity? I'm going to briefly touch on on four of those. One is asking questions differently. So instead of asking the kind of dreaded, what do you do question that puts people into boxes and, and leaves them there, why not ask something like, what do you enjoy doing? It's a very small change, but what it does is it gets people out of the autopilot of kind of, you know, going into, oh, I'm this and this and this into what do I really enjoy doing? It opens an opportunity space and vice versa. How do we react to the question? What do you do? Do we just say something like, I'm an educator, or do we do it like Ollie Barrett, a wonderful entrepreneur in London, that if you would ask him the dreaded what do you do question, he wouldn't just say, I'm a technology entrepreneur. He would say something like, I'm a technology entrepreneur, recently started reading into the philosophy of science, but what I'm really excited about is playing the piano. And so what he's doing here is he's giving you three potential hooks where you could be like, oh my God, such a coincidence. My sister is teaching on the philosophy of science. You should give a guest lecture oh my God, such a coincidence, we hosted piano sessions, you should stop by. The point is, I'm a big fan of stepping back and thinking about what are some key curiosities in my life at the moment that I'm interested in? Is it to take a serendipity mindset into different curricula around the world? Is it to you know learn more about parenting because I just became a parent? Things like this. And then kind of seeding that into every conversation. And then from the most unexpected of places come the solutions to problems we're looking for, but also things we didn't even know uh, we were looking for. The second one is really around seeing crises and mistakes as inflection points, similar to you know, what we saw uh, in the case of Viagra. Um, I'm a big fan of the project funeral, where the idea is that usually in organizations and in families and wherever we are, we try to hide things that didn't work out, right? We, try to, we don't want to be the loser, the failure that messed something up, right? That's a pity, especially in organizations, because a lot of times real learning comes from things that didn't work, right? And so the project funeral is about saying, how do we take things that didn't work and then present them to people across the organization, reflecting on what we learned from it. So it's not about celebrating failure. It's celebrating the learning from what didn't work. And so in this one example of a company I've been collaborating with, they have this wonderful window glass. It doesn't reflect the light. So it's an amazing technology. But at some point, the project manager laid it to rest and said, look, I learned that you know, the, the market for that is not big enough. Now, someone in the audience goes like, hey, 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 have you considered what this could mean for solar? Have you considered, if you take that technology into a solar context, how much energy that might absorb? And that is how serendipitously so part of the solar division emerged. Now, there's a lot of these kind of practices that we can have in companies like, you know, serendipity spotting, where you ask people in the weekly meeting what surprised you last week, right, where then people might come up and say, oh. It surprised me that people use their washing machine differently. Things like this, where it's really a lot about incentivizing people to look out for the unexpected, not as a threat, but as a potential opportunity and, and something that really makes our life better. A third practice is really around, you know, some of us might miss these kind of water cooler moments, right? Where in the office or somewhere else, you bump into the boss of your boss and then get that unexpected promotion or things like this. So I've been a big fan of how do we replicate that online? And one of the the things that I found most interesting is random coffee trials where people across an organization sign up and then they get randomly matched with people across the organization for a quick coffee with an inspiring question like, what's a challenge you're facing in the organization and how can I help you? And by doing this now, every week, you could have a meaningful collision with someone, especially with people who might be above you in the hierarchy who could really change your, your life. And so it also creates a sense of belonging within an organization because we tend to be more and more uh, disconnect. And last but absolutely not least, uh, we just uh, finished a study that we also then included into, into the book, which is essentially we sat down with over 40 CEOs of large companies, companies like MasterCard and others, and we tried to understand what is it that makes you more successful than others. And one of the key themes that came out of it is that those CEOs are extremely good at having some kind of sense of direction. So some kind of idea, if you're MasterCard, for example, and, and, and Michael will join us, and I've, I've, I've always found that really interesting how um, MasterCard has been doing this, where essentially, you know, MasterCard would say, look, we used to be a payments company. But actually, there's a lot of people in tough environments who could benefit from our capabilities. So why don't we get 500 million people into the financial system who were previously unbanked? And by setting that North Star, by setting that sense of direction, now people can rally around something. They can connect the dots to something. When they meet their neighbor who tells them about a new technology for inclusive innovation, they know, oh my God, that's what we're doing. I could, I could connect them. So they care more about because it's something that's that's, that's nice to care about, but also they built in the unexpected to the process. There's a strategy, but also the acceptance that information might come from the most unexpected of places, and then the strategy gets adjusted. And that's not a threat to the leadership. That's actually part of the plan. And so what we've seen with a lot of successful CEOs is that they're extremely good at saying, it's not a threat to my authority, but actually I, from the beginning, say that the unexpected will be part of my plan. And so essentially, we can build that into it and it will happen. How does that work for individuals? Um, there's a lot of pressure sometimes right, on this idea, find your purpose, find your passion. I'm a big fan of finding your curiosity, finding something that you're curious about, and then that allows you to cast a couple of hooks, put yourself into communities that are related to it, and then serendipity tends to work out and happen. Now, I wouldn't uh, do justice to the philosophical roots uh, of, of where I came from uh, without uh, you know closing with Goethe, um, who had this beautiful idea that if you take someone as they are, you make them worse. But if you take them as what they could be, you make them capable of becoming what they can be. And that's really what serendipity is about. A lot of the things we just talked about are about potentiality. It's about what could be. Could a person be more than meets the eye? Could a situation be more than meets the eye? Can I see a little bit more in something that I thought might be a bad situation, but actually might be the inflection point for something great? And so that's really kind of where a lot of the things Viktor Frankl also was inspired by, by Goethe was this idea that if you look at people as who they could be, you enable them a lot of times to become who they can be. And I think that's especially important for leadership in this world that we live in, to really enable people to become their best self by allowing them to have that smart luck happen, especially in contexts where usually people might not have it, by, for example, providing them with the right mentors, providing them with the right support structures, and so on, to really create their own luck, which gives you a lot of dignity in a lot of different areas. Now, for now, this is my editor mentions. I should mention that this is the book um, that has come out. Uh, it's available everywhere. But for now, we have a very exciting panel with four of my absolute favorite people uh, in the world uh, who will join us on stage, and uh, we'll briefly introduce them, and then we will dive into uh, the key questions that we'll talk about. Um, so uh, you will see them come on stage now uh, with a very kind of a beautiful applause, right? So we, we all are clapping our hands for you. Um, and uh, so we have four exceptional panelists. Uh, first, uh, to my upper left here is Silvana Sinha, who is a Bangladeshi-American lawyer and entrepreneur who built Prava Health from scratch uh, and now serves more than 250,000 patients. Um, she's been featured in her work in Forbes magazine, Financial Times. A fast Company called her uh, her idea one of the world-changing ideas in 2021, and she's a uh, technology pioneer at the World Economic Forum. We've had a couple of uh, conversations together and a couple of panels together, and um, she's always inspiring a, a lot, uh, especially also, what can you do in, in, in tougher settings and in tougher environments? A lot to learn from, from Silvana. Michael Fracaro is the Chief People Officer at MasterCard, uh, where he's responsible for all human resource functions globally, and he's a member of the Management Committee, so he's actually calling the shots uh, in, in the company. Uh, and pulling the strings. Uh, Prior to joining MasterCard, Michael was a core member of the HR leadership team at HSBC, and he previously held senior positions in banking and financial services in Australia and the Middle East. And uh, Michael and I, we we initially met, we did a podcast together, and I was completely blown away by his insights from all these experiences he's had around the world, and he's a natural dot connector. So Michael, I'm very excited to to have you with us. Thank you for, for making the time. Um, we have Ria Parabi, uh, Pabari, with me, who is the kind of person uh, you really want to have a, a quick coffee with. I remember the first time we met, uh, we were aimed to go for a very quick coffee. And it's kind of a, one of these situations where someone just inspires you in so many different ways and corners that um, you end up connecting so many dots that, uh, that, that it becomes timeless. And so um, Ria is, has been connecting so many dots in her life as founder or co-founder of Framework, which is a mobile-first learning social, uh, social learning platform for a new generation of modern business leaders. Um, and a lot of uh, the biggest tech entrepreneurs in the world are backing it, which is always a nice sign of, of, of something actually having proper, as we would say in German, feet. Um, and prior to co-founding Framework, um, she was uh, very involved with Founders Academy, where she was running Uh, programs. And before that, she was in macro investing, social enterprise, innovation consulting, and tech startups, and has been connecting dots uh, throughout her whole life uh, from from what I've seen. And so, Ria, thank you for for being with us. Um, We're looking forward to learning from you. And then last, but absolutely not least, uh, we have Lord Michael Hastings. Uh, Lord Hastings uh, today spoke in parliament. uh, And apparently, there's the rule that when you speak in parliament, you have to attend the session until it's done. So he will join us as soon as he will get out of the session. Uh, that is uh, taking a bit longer. Uh, you can imagine it's heated time. So people probably have a lot to discuss in the chambers. But he's a very uh, dear friend and very inspiring uh, individual who um, uh, I met serendipitously at a conference. Uh, he is the kind of person who constantly introduces people, makes things happen. He's a member of the British House of Lords, uh, the chair of the SOAS uh, Board of Trustees, And previously, he was the Chancellor of Regent University London, the Global Head of Citizenship at KPMG International, and the BBC's Head of Public Affairs, and the first Head of Corporate Responsibility. So he has seen a lot uh, and and will give us a lot of insights into those works. He also was the Vice President of of UNICEF UK, so has a wonderful perspective, both in business and and other areas. So now let's dive into this panel conversation. I'd love to kind of uh, dive in with the first question. I think, Silvana, you, you appear first on my screen, so I'll I'll just uh, start start there, uh, Solana, What was the role of serendipity of, of smart luck like in your life, and and what did you do to make it more likely to happen? What what can we learn from that?
3: So <laughs> I think that um, I I I when I was starting out on my journey with my company, which was about almost eight years ago now, um, I was very open to listening to pretty much anyone who would meet me and I, and I when I talk to young entrepreneurs I, I I use that language and they sometimes laugh um but it really is what I did um because I I was at the beginning of my journey I was I was a first time entrepreneur I did not know much about healthcare my company's a healthcare company um providing direct services um in clinic services uh We've built labs. We've, we've got the full range of imaging services in-house pharmacy. I hadn't done any of these things. Um, and so, I think I, I was really very open. And um, that be, being that open, I think, ultimately led me to meeting a lot of people who are still on this journey with me, um, whether in the form of team members. My, my first Employee, uh, I mean, he's a member of our management team. I don't like to call him an employee. He's really more of a partner. Um, has been, he just celebrated his six-year anniversary with us. Um, I met investors this way. I met people who are still advisors to the company. Um, So I think just being really open and and it, it did, it was a big investment of time to be honest with you, but I learned so much from those early conversations and particularly when I was in Bangladesh, because I I was born and raised in the United States. I had never lived in Bangladesh before um, for, I'd never spend more than a few months at a time there. Anyone I talked to, I learned from because they were, they'd all been a patient, um, they'd all had intimate experiences in the healthcare system, and it helped me to learn the pain points in the healthcare system in Bangladesh and what people were really frustrated with in the system, and it helped me to ultimately craft my solution. So I'll just share that as one example and a starting point. Um, but I think that that in this, those initial days in particular really laid a really strong foundation for me um, and, and, and set us up for success in the future. I think you're muted. Great
2: yes thank you no it's it's uh um how was it uh, with you in terms of how what role did serendipity play in your life and, and how did you navigate that
4: yeah um when i look back i guess on my career i feel like i've had kind of multiple chapters and i think about those kind of butterfly event moments where i was probably at a fork in the road and something happened that then you know fundamentally probably changed the direction that i then went in and um I kind of now have the language to understand what happened, thanks to the, your presentation that you just did. But um, uh, you know, a couple of examples. Uh, I was uh, in my my former life. I started my career as a trader at J.P. Morgan, and I was thinking about um, you know what else I wanted to do, and um, I ended up uh, getting invited to. I was I was the youngest on the desk, so uh, I was kind of the the, the fourth um, <laughs> the fourth person to be invited to a kind of big client dinner. Um, and just in that moment, it was kind of like everyone was leaving in 10 minutes. Do I say yes? Do I say no? And that evening, I ended up meeting my future boss, who's now, you know, big mentor of mine, who's the one of our biggest investors in the business. And, um, another example, um, know having conversations with i've done a lot of kind of career pivots and having conversations with people who are looking to make similar career decisions and just offering you know some advice Um, it was one conversation i had that then sparked the idea for the business that i then went on to found called founders academy Um, and i think that the common there's probably two common themes in those like serendipitous moments for me at least and i think the first is probably just saying yes in those moments and um uh, I think it's just kind of very powerful to your point of just being very open minded. Um, and the second key idea for me is that um, when you think about opportunities, like you're really thinking about people, I think all opportunities uh, are really connected to people. And so I think networks have played a really important part in in that journey. Um, Someone said to me the other day, one of the best pieces of career advice I've ever had is if you, if you proactively build relationships with people that represent the world you want to live in, you'll, you'll never have to look for a job again. I think that kind of, you know, just is really about, you know, life will just take care of itself because the opportunities will present itself.
2: That's such a beautiful notion, both of the butterfly effect and of, of, of the idea of the community. Um, that we build around us, and and that's actually why I think you know those of you who are watching this who are interested in social entrepreneurship, social innovation, that's been the Marshall Institute for me. You know, this kind of like breeding ground of of serendipity happening because you just have the right people around you who who care and, and who want to make stuff happen. And so, um, that, that's definitely something. Uh, and I think Michael, uh, in your case, how what was the role of serendipity, and and how have you been living it, and what what can we learn from it?
0: Yeah, so, uh, so thanks, Christian. I think the, the theme that seems to be emerging out of both Silvana and Ria's uh, discussion is really around being open-minded, um, and I think that's where it really starts. And you know, if I think about it through the lens of human capital and, um, and career choices, um, you know, even for myself, you know, I started off as a high school teacher in a, um, a Sydney suburban school in Australia, and I remember about three years into teaching, uh, one of the more senior teachers uh, who was nearing retirement, she came and had a conversation with me. She said, Michael, have you ever considered doing something else and going out into the wider world? And um, and I, I looked at this in two ways. One was either this was some feedback that I wasn't doing too well or it was really a kind gesture of saying, open your mind. Um, and so I reflected on that and actually took the opportunity to leave teaching with the view I'd go and work in private enterprise, leverage the skills that I had, uh, but come back as a better educator. Um, But I never went back. I went into HR, worked in technology companies and financial services, and um, ended up with probably the best job in the world leading people at at MasterCard. So so being open-minded, I think, is, is really, really important. But then the other side of this is, is how does um, serendipity play a part um, in the work that, that I do at MasterCard? And there's a couple of things. The pandemic actually created a whole lot of serendipitous moments. No one knew what was going to happen. No one had a playbook around what to do. And I remember one call that, that we did at, at MasterCard with our leadership team and the, the call was really um, an all hands with all our employees, with our CEO um, and myself. And, um, and essentially, the, the notion was a lot of the priorities that we had planned in 2020 all went up in the air. And uh, we knew that we had to pivot the business very quickly. And the idea was we had five strategic priorities um, and we knew that we had people that were looking to actually help contribute to these priorities. And so we branded this, um, this initiative Project Possible and we went on to, um, onto the stage, onto the town hall and said, hey, we need 50 people, uh, 10 per uh, project to volunteer some of their time uh, to work on these initiatives. And um, we didn't get 50, we got 10 times that number. And that actually created an opportunity for us. We said, wow there is a real opportunity to create this, this internal talent marketplace. The yes, we'll work on this from a crisis perspective, but actually let's take this idea and actually blow it up and, and make it something that we can really scale. So that's what we've actually focused on. So we've moved from the, the rubber bands and um, the good wishes of people and their, their good efforts to actually something which is much more sustainable. And what this does, this internal talent marketplace it allows people within the organisation to, um, if you're a pe- if you're a people manager, you can put up the project um, and say, hey, if you're interested, come and work on this project. And if you're an individual, you can also put on your profile and say, I'm interested in these kinds of things, or I'm interested to be mentored. And this connection that happens actually creates relationships, it creates connections, and it industrialises this whole notion behind serendipity. So. There's some of the things that, that we've done. And then I'd, I'd stop on one, one final point, again, business-related, um, and this is really around br- our brand. Um, and so we've moved from this whole notion about having to have, you know, the two concentric circles of MasterCard and have MasterCard underneath because brand recognition is extremely high. Our chief marketing officer has gone another step forward and actually said, look, in addition to the way that people see a brand, it's not just um, through the visual, it's through other senses. And so our chief marketing officer has created a sonic brand. Um, so when you tap out at a um, at a merchant, it actually has a melody, which again connects to the MasterCard brand. He's gone another step further and he's he's got um, macaroons in the shape of the MasterCard circles to have the the flavour or the taste of Mastercard, and the last one that he did was um, uh, around smell, and he's created uh, these amazing perfumes which you can buy in some um, airports, which have um, passion and inspiration, two um, two senses that again connect to uh, to the brand. So there's amazing things that that can happen even with these things like brand. And the final thing was around how do you how do you deal with um, individuals that may be visually impaired and so you know you may have two Mastercards or you may have some other um, uh, payment network in your in your wallet he's created uh, a, um, a way of using using touch to have a different shape on the card so that when when you're fiddling around in your wallet and you want to make sure the Mastercard one comes out it'll have a different shape that um, you don't even have to look at your card, when you're in a dark place, you'll be able to feel, and that's, that's the market. So there's a number of ways. And, again, this doesn't happen by planning it up five years ahead. There are moments that happen that actually create this, uh, this uh, wonderful innovation in the organization as well.
2: That's that's fascinating developments. And and thank you for sharing. I think it it really also goes into the direction of saying, hey, look, we always focus on a few senses, right? Like we always talk to people and pitch to people and things like that. But actually, we all react to energy. We all react to kind of different senses that really make our decisions uh, uh, for us in a way. And then we kind of rationalize it and and tell people why we did what and, and so on. So it's fascinating that you're Proactively addressing this and and by doing this, I'm sure you're also creating a ceremony amongst other people, right? Not only for for yourself. So that's that's really fascinating. Thank you. We also have Lord Hastings sharing. Michael, thank you so much for for joining us. I hope you won the debate. I already told people how amazing you are, how how a wonderful friend and mentor you've been. Uh, to me and, and how much impact you've also had on this book, actually, in terms of uh, Michael has been, because Michael has been doing a lot of work, especially with people who might have come from a background that might not directly put them on the map. And so I think, Michael, you've inspired me a lot in terms of thinking about what are the societal constraints here and what are the uh, the things that might be unseen, right? Uh, like that people might leave their uh, their um, their window blinds down because they they are afraid that the police might look inside and, and, and just kind of randomly take them out. Things like this where I don't think it is uh, visible to to a lot of people in society what, what what others might go through, and so thank you for in a way pushing me also towards towards that direction a lot, and for all the impact you've you've had in the world. Um, now we we just get started, so so it's it's a perfect time to join, and it's actually we we just were kind of answering the first question uh, around what is the role of serenity in your life, and and what did you make it. Uh, what did you do to make it more likely to happen? And what, what can we learn from this? In, in your life, I know a lot of things have happened. Uh, over to you. What, what is your kind of uh, take on that?
4: Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event.
5: Oh, thanks very much, Christian. Thanks for allowing me to come in a bit late. And I do apologise. Parliamentary procedure makes it very difficult to step away from the ministerial conclusions of a debate. So there we are. It is what it is. Um, I, something was <clears throat> in my mind as I was listening to your point, uh, and I'll probably try to make two points if I can. The, the first one was an experience probably about two months ago at an event in the Midlands in the United Kingdom where a lady came up to me and she said, uh, you don't know me and I don't know you, <coughs> but um, your father did my mother's teeth. Well, my father was a dental surgeon. Did, your father did my mother's teeth about 55 years ago. And I remember the name because she always used to talk about dentist Hastings. And you mentioned in your remarks that you were <coughs> born in witness, and that's where my mother lived. So your father did my mother's teeth 55 years ago. Um, and you know what? I turned to her and I said, wow, that's amazing. Are her teeth good? I mean, do they look good? Do they, does she feel they taste good? As in, she's not happy to have them in her mouth. And is it good? And she said, yes, my mother is or oh, the best set of teeth you can imagine for a woman who's in her late 80s or something like that. Now, that made a very important point to me, which is all of us can create reputation without realizing it. I think my father just did his job. He probably didn't expect that 55 years later, this, the residue of his impact on this lady was going to turn into a positive <coughs> conversation exchange. For me and in the place in which I was, I think how we, how, we choose to, um, how we choose to deal with people in reputation terms is a really important way that we make impact connections without realizing it. Uh, if you're very badly served in a restaurant or in a shop, you tend not to go there again. Or if somebody is just in a mass grump. Uh, So they make you feel tiny when you began your day feeling, oh, you tend to avoid those people. So contention, argument, um, disagreement, uh, disdain, discomfort cause us to disconnect, whereas um, warmth and uh, kindness uh, and (coughs) being being, um, absorbing uh, and tender, cause us to connect and to stay connected and to keep memories of connection and then to repeat those memories to other people. Um, Many of my sons you've met, Christian, run businesses. And uh, for example, one of them, Clearview Research, Kenny, who runs that business, uh, (coughs) now now a £1.6 million business, which two years ago was less than £100,000. And he will say they've never spent a penny on marketing, not, not one penny. Marketing is wonderful stuff, but never spent a penny on marketing. How have they grown so quickly and with such significance? Because I, I helped him to understand how important it is to make great impressions on people, not, not business impressions on people, but impressions of personality with people by asking questions. So if you're very curious with people in reception events, uh, drinks events, dinner events, or just events, or just online, or just, if you're very curious of people. Fascinating how curious they are with you in return. But if you're very stating with people, I'm going to tell you what I'm about, uh, it's interesting how they back away. So learning these kind of simple tools of um, building the reputational confidence. Now, the one thing I want to add to that, and then I'll wrap up with this question, and forgive my cough, it's not COVID, it's just mm-hmm. a fever. Um, is uh, that one of the things that people in the less economically prosperous communities that I love to hang around with, and you've met many of them, Christian, in other words, young black people in the inner cities in London and elsewhere, (coughs) one of the things they will often say is they, quote, suffer from imposter syndrome. And I'm trying to get lots of them to unpick, including someone who came for breakfast this morning, who's actually got a director's job at a big, uh, construction uh, consultancy and, and surveying company. And he talked to me this morning about imposter syndrome. So I always challenge people to say, listen, imposter syndrome is really an attitude of mind, it's not a fact of existence. In other words, if you think I'm an impo- I, I've arrived here at the Palace of Westminster, for example, or I've arrived in the headquarters of a big business, um, and I shouldn't be there. I shouldn't be there. So if I convince myself, that this is, a, you know, this is a big deal walking in the doors of this business or this place, this is a big deal and I'm not the right kind of person for it then I've already diminished my relational connection with it, I need to strengthen that relational connection so what I try to teach them is no every place that allows you to walk in wants you to be there every place that allows you to meet somebody says that you have value and if you have value you express that value Not by asserting yourself, but by finding out who they are, no matter who they are. Now, then you've made a little connect, which is exactly what you and I did, Christian, many moons ago in Davos at the World Economic Forum. We made one of those magic connections. And when you make that magic connection, you then want to develop it, take it on and meet each other. And so. And um, what I would say a lot of people from less advantage communities lack is to know how to ask questions. It's questions that draw out the identity of the other person.
2: Thank you for, for sharing this fascinating perspective, Michael. I think you 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 touch on a couple of points that are also of extreme interest for the audience. I saw a couple of the questions um, around A, like what does it mean for people who might come from less privileged backgrounds? Like how does that play out, that kind of mindset in those uh, areas? And and I think you you made a very interesting point here, right? That there's probably two elements of it. One is the kind of self-limiting belief that we all have. Right, that we all can work on, like the imposter syndrome, fear of rejection, things like this. We can dive deeper into this. How, you know, I've always found it useful when you have a fear of rejection, for example, to not think about what's the worst thing that can happen if I do it, right, being rejected by the person. So, but what's the worst thing if I don't do it? The, the feeling of regret, right? That you walk outside the coffee shop and think, ah, what could have happened? Had I spoken with this person? What could have happened? Had I spoken with that speaker? And, and that's the, the, the feeling that stays with you far longer, right? So, so there we can work on what are the kind of occasions in my life that where the unexpected could have happened or happened, but I didn't act on it and really understanding the pattern behind it, the kind of self-limiting belief, which is socially constructed in a sense by ourselves. And then I think one thing that I've learned a lot from you also is you know, really the structural constraints that are objective, right? That, that our kind of, um, our 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 starting levels are very different. If you're, a, 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 you know, a, a black boy growing up in a, in a less privileged area in London, um, you might not have access to the same kind of networks that, that others of us have. And so at the same time, as we talk about the kind of social construction, also the question of how do we all, facilitate environments for people to have more of that potential serendipity, so to really increase their base level of potential serendipity. And I think that's the beautiful thing that goes hand in hand, I think, Michael, and you're thinking also in terms of how do you, on one hand, make an impact with people, and on the other hand, work on them on mindset, so to really kind of see, okay, what's the kind of best of of both worlds? And I think that's what comes comes out of our research as well. I also think you you touched on another point that I'd love to use that as a linking point for For the next question for everyone, which is really the idea of getting away from transactional stuff where you just focus on pitching to someone or going to an event and just then you're one of 100,000 people right, to pitch to. If you have an interesting person in the room, there'll always be hundreds of people who pitch to that person, right? You will not be memorable to that person. But if you're the only person who actually asks genuine curious questions because you're interested in the person that's the one person actually probably uh, the other person wants to stay in touch with. And so I think it's a beautiful way to focus on meaningful relationships as a kind of genuine thing that actually feels meaningful. (laughs) People on their deathbeds always say the one thing they regret is not having had more meaningful uh, relationships in their life, right? So it's a, it's a deathbed regret that we can all avoid, but also at the same time, beautifully. So, uh, like an eastern philosophy right good things tend to come back to us because to your point reputation travels and 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 so on and i think that's a beautiful thing i had a conversation yesterday just as a side note with Jack Sim who's the um uh, he he founded the world toilet organization it's a very interesting organization but um he 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 brings in a lot of eastern philosophy and i think that's always interesting to think about getting away from the kind of overly you know westernized idea of individualism and everything else to how do we all in a way are connected in some way or the other and figure it out and and, and figure out that connection that comes with more meaningful questions. So thank you so much, uh, Michael, for for making that point, which leads me to the second one, which is really around looking back, you know, Savannah, and maybe starting with you uh, up here, looking back, what would you have loved to know when you started out? I mean, what surprised you the most in your journey when you went out there and made all these things happen that you made happen?
3: Um, That's a great question. I think, um, I do think actually, I mean, I'll pick up on the last point that Lord Hastings made, which is about asking questions. Um, I think I I spent a lot of time asking questions. And I think that has become part of our company's culture, to be honest, and not just asking questions, but really listening to the answers to those questions. And I think um, we have um, our values are embodied in SMILE, S-M-I-L-E, and the L stands for listening, actually. Um, And so I think that you know, that what I described at the very beginning of, of, you know, the early days of my journey when I I really went on a listening tour and talked to so many people, I think um, that value of asking questions is something that has carried through to this day and I think continues to carry through in terms of the way we think about our work and are constantly trying to challenge ourselves. Um, Well, I think what has surprised me is also just, you know, expect the unexpected when you're starting a company, um, certainly in an emerging market, and during a pand- and you know, we were in our third year of operations when the pandemic hit um, and found ourselves on the front lines of that. And um, that was a very scary moment for us, I'll say, you know, and, and a near death moment for us. But we very quickly pivoted the business and it turned into an opportunity when we became one of the first private labs to get approval to do COVID testing in our country in Bangladesh. Um, and um, so I think. All of those things, just continuing to push and, and question others, and also question yourselves uh, to challenge yourselves to to turn to turn any potential moment into an opportunity.
2: Doing it again, um, expect the <laughs> unexpected. Unmute mute button, um, Ria. Uh, Over to you. In terms of what what was it in your life that you would have loved to know when you started out? What what surprised you the most?
4: And um, yeah, I think. Um God, if I could go back and say things to my 18-year-old self. Um, I think the first would be that life, your life narrative tends to make more sense backwards than forwards. And so really focus, uh, you know, when you're starting out your career on um, just kind of invest in finding joy in the process of like finding yourself, right? Um, I think we're all on this, qu- I, I'm a product person, and, and I think a lot about what like product market fit means for a, a business, but I think a lot about what personal product market fit looks like for us as individuals. And I think, you know, as humans, we're on that quest for, for our whole lives and we are constantly changing, our environment is changing. And so it's it's, no, it's not a static concept, it's an evolving concept. And so actually, if you start to really learn the tools and, you know, the, the cliche of happiness is not about the destination, but the journey, um, just uh, you know, finding joy in in every day, and something that you said, uh, Lord Hastings, just really resonated around the, the mindset shift. Um, I remember actually the first time I was introduced to Carol Dweck's um, philosophy of growth mindset when I was learning to code at 25, and I was like you know, that humility that comes with being a beginner. And they really kind of explained it to us. And I was kind of like, why is this the first time in my life that I'm being like explicitly told that my brain has the capacity to grow its, grow its ability to solve problems? Um, and I just think that falling in love with kind of being a beginner again, and just that it's a really joy, joyful process to learn and to develop mastery, um, just kind of, again, I think flips what is, Sometimes seen as imposter syndrome, into just again the joy of being a beginner.
2: That points, I guess, to, to a lot of really interesting themes, right, around perfectionism and, and the question of how perfect do I have to be in every situation, and that, that that's holding us back so many times, right? And and um, Michael, uh, in, in terms of your uh, your uh, experience and what you would have loved to know, and uh, what, and what surprised you, I think it's. A I like, uh, it's a similar
0: oh, thing. Oh, sorry, that might. Oh, this one. Yeah. Well, that <laughs> one. Oh, yes. <laughs> Michael F., yes. <laughs> Michael F. Um, no, I think it's it's, it's a similar theme. It is it is around, um, you know, the open-mindedness, the thinking again. Um, and so, so you know, if I look at it from, um, again, from a human capital perspective, I wish I'd known much earlier um, some of these aspects around um, thinking about different people to, to solve problems rather than, drawing on the same people all the time. And I think companies um, are beginning to, to learn the lesson that if you go and recruit people from the same school with the same background, um, with the same education qualifications, you're probably going to get similar kinds of solutions to problems that you're solving. But if you start recruiting from from different backgrounds, from different socioeconomic backgrounds, um, um uh, uh, in in um, in the communities that you live in actually you build stronger teams um and i think that is a is a learning that probably has only come about the last i don't know 10 years 7 years um and some are not there yet um so i think that is one one learning and i go back to the point that i made at the beginning i think the crisis um that all of us have gone through has had has had a profound effect on what we've had to do, because we've all had to to be gritty. We've all had to roll the sleeves up, and we've had to bring people from um, from different parts of our organisation to figure out how what's our path forward. And and even in my organisation, we've brought people from facilities, from our crisis team, from security, from technology, every background. And it's 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 like um, an orchestra. You know, you're basically bring all these instruments together, playing a beautiful tune to, to actually appeal to what that mission is that you're trying to achieve. And I think that kind of um, uh, look back and reflection, had I known that earlier in my career, I would have constructed teams much differently
2: early on. Yeah, oh, that's excellent. And, and Michael H., uh, what's, what's your take on, on that question?
5: Well, I think probably just a small point, which is one of the things I – Learned in my time at KPMG is that, you know, <clears throat> people come into job roles and let's say they're an auditor. Um, and so the people in audit think, right, we got this, this person with us. But the, p- <coughs> the people in business services or tax think, eh, nothing to do with us. And the, the, the pigeonholing that goes on in business life, corporate life, organizational life means that the person The personality, the the human, um, (coughs) is rarely brought to the fore. So their skill is brought to the fore, their service to the business, their job, but not their person. And I think one of the things I discovered over the many decades, it helps when you're in your mid-60s, is to realize (coughs) that actually... um, ah, Something's just about to happen. I'm going to have to keep quiet for a (laughs) minute when it was possible <laughs> you better go to someone else
2: yeah okay let's 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 continue to the next question we don't want to have
3: yeah Christian I'll yeah, just so not, up yeah. On the, I think there's a couple of questions also that came through on career pivots and I think mm-hmm. um, again I feel like you know I also have had a number of career pivots I, I, I'm i a lawyer I, I left the law twice and worked in management consulting and in international development and I think um, I, I, I what I would like to say to young people who are listening is really pursue opportunities that will allow you to grow at the rate that you know you're capable of growing. I think that's that should be your main focus as as a and and, and not just young people. I mean, I think. I even think about that for myself, right? I mean, am I continuing to be stretched? Am I continuing to learn and be challenged? Of course, there will be moments where you might want to slow down, you have a young child, but you know, when you're in those moments in your career, when you're really trying to grow, I, I think just stay focused on that. And I think that's how you should even think of career pivot. So if there's a pivot that's you know, presenting itself to you or that you're thinking about, I, I, I think I always say go for it um, if you feel like you're going in that direction.
5: I can come back to you now, um, Christian, if it's helpful, Mm -hmm. Um, which is the point I was trying to make was that what I began to discover over the 13 years of being there (coughs) because I was not audit or business services or tax services, I began to discover people for who they were. And when you discover people (coughs) for who they are, they tell you about areas of knowledge and experience that they've got. You think, oh, that's fascinating. I never saw you in that light. I thought you were just an auditor. So then I discovered that actually you're a musician. And not only are you a musician, but this person in tax is also a musician. And so one of the things we ended up doing, which is fascinating, is creating an orchestra out of auditors and tax advisors. Now, who would ever think you'd do that? And then (coughs) developing sports teams out of people from different disciplines simply because (coughs) they were bold enough to express their interest, not just their skill. So I think um, learning how to let people be human in the fullest sense of the word is something which, uh, as I go back to my early career, if such a thing existed, I wish I'd understood more then how important that is. I would have drawn out many, many more
2: people. Yeah, well, that's beautiful. And last two questions from my side, and then I'll hand over to Jonathan, who will uh, facilitate the audience Q&A. Please, if you have questions, do put them in the the Q&A section already, and we'll... Uh, then try to get as many answers as we can uh you know last question from or previous to last question from my side is if you were and, and Silvana, you you touched on this a little bit already if you were a young person or generally maybe also someone who kind of just went through one career and now wants to kind of start their second life or third life um if you were starting out today with something some kind of curiosity whatever it is what would you focus or not focus on and and more broadly. What, what does success mean to you today and, and how has it changed over time? Uh, Silvana, do you want to uh, start with it?
3: Sure. I think um, I would focus on becoming an expert in whatever it is that you want to do. I think that's, that's very important. It's not quite related to the, to the serendipity mindset, but I think it's, uh, it's important. I think that being prepared as an expert will make you prepared to take advantage of the moments of serendipity that present themselves to you. Um, I think I shared with you in one of our conversations, Christian, I had the opportunity in my very early days to meet a very, uh, very high, you know, high-ranking member of the U.S. military who's now one of our investors. And um, I had no idea what to expect of it, but I was prepared. And I think that, you know, those moments are are the other ones that you're going to be ready for. You know, Oprah says that you... Um, you get what you ask for in life. I'm I'm not sure I agree with that, but I do think you don't get what you don't ask for in life. And so being prepared as an expert will help you to to go after those moments. And I think that when I think about success, I think that success for me continues to be what I said earlier, which is, you know, being able to grow uh, at the rate that I know that I'm capable of. And, And I continue to hold myself to that standard throughout my career.
2: Yeah, no, that's really interesting, and, and to your point, right? It's, it's easier to spot an anomaly or something that's different if you have some kind of idea of of what you what you're going into, and then you know, uh, in a way, preparedness or or luck favoring the prepared in some way, or the other sometimes, and then at the same time, not wanting to have the functional fixedness that keeps us right, the hammer and nail problem that keeps us from, uh, in a way, not seeing other options because we don't have the beginner's mind that you and, and Michael alluded to earlier. So it's kind of this beautiful balance, you not know, between the two. Uh, expertise and, and kind of beginner's mind that kind of in a way balances beautifully and uh, that leads as, as as nicely to to Rhea. i feel you you've been embodying a lot of this in in your life um uh, what is what is what is it in your life where you feel uh, you know what's your kind of thoughts on success and, and and if you were starting out today how how would you do that
4: yeah um i feel like becoming a founder of a company has really changed the way I think about my own, my own life. I almost think it put this hat on of like, I'm also the founder of my life. And I, I take the analogy quite far Sometimes I, I call my husband, my co-founder in life. Um, and um, I guess um, just, again, the frameworks that we use to build a business. And if we think about our, our career as a venture that we're building have been really helpful for me. And um, just like one, you know, again, like a design thinking framework of, you know, how do you make good decisions? You, you frame the decision, you diverge on options, you then converge on options, and then you test a hypothesis, and then you repeat the process. And I think it's such a good um, framework to make good career decisions. And I think what's important in in that is really understanding and embracing which phase of that you're in. Um, So, you know, framing the decision is often a lot about self-awareness, reflecting on who you are, what you're passionate about. But then when you're in that diverge phase, like really embrace it. Like diverge means there's no constraints, like there's no bad answer, like explore. Um, But then importantly, when you are in the converge phase and maybe this goes against the serendipity mindset, I think it is okay to say no, right? At some point you need to focus to Silvana's point about developing mastery and becoming an expert and honing your craft. Um, So that's just something that I think is, again, a a helpful way to navigate um, this this uncertain world and difficult decisions where it almost feels like your opportunity set is endless. Um, In terms of success, I I just, I thought Sylvana frames it really beautifully. And I I think I'm very much of the same, um, you know, really rethought what is success for me. And and it really is that kind of velocity of growth and learning. Um, And uh, I think I, however, I think about it in a few different ways and um, had the the privilege of building a whole business around. This is kind of, a, a, I thought about this a lot um, when we built Founds Academy, which is an alternative MBA for mid-career professionals. Um, well, we defined this, again, this, this whole kind of rubric around what success means for humans. Um, and we called it adaptability quotient, um, but we really broke it down into kind of three levels. And it really shapes now how I think about my own personal growth. Um, we talked about like our human hardware, so our physical and mental fitness. Um, our human operating system, which is the lens through which we see the world, which includes like how well do you know yourself, how diverse your networks, how elastic do you, you know is your thinking. And then your human application, so like your in demand knowledge and skills. And so I guess as I think about growth, I, I feel like it's really important to me that I'm developing in all three levels in you know in some kind of balance i don't want to kind of you know be over indexing on growth around you know the human applications at the expense of my human hardware
2: yeah no that's such 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 great points and actually um you know Uh, the the filter question right how do you especially the people in this room right who who are on this panel who have so much serendipity in their life that it could overwhelm them also like how do you filter that i've always been a big fan of what pixar does for example this kind of creative company that produces finding memo and so on where they have brain trust that just briefly decide this idea makes sense this not but relatively informal but just kind of making sure okay we don't get overwhelmed. Or, you know, in, in companies having a parking lot where you say, these ideas are amazing that unexpectedly merged. but for now, let's put them on the parking lot and then later on, we'll we'll get back to them. And to your point, right, there's a time for everything. And if you want to do conceptual things, especially, you can't be constantly um, having having serendipity happen. At some point, you've got to execute. And so it's kind of this dynamic balance that's that's, uh, that's absolutely interesting. I think, um, Michael, um, going over to you in terms of if you were a person starting out today, what would you focus or not focus on and what's success to you nowadays? Yeah, I think... Um
0: you know, we're, we're limited by what tends to be in front of us. And I think um, I would say to my younger self, you know, have a much wider aperture, you know, look up, look down, look left, look right, um, and really just see what's out there. And I think that would be the first thing. And, and quite often I think we start off, um, you know, telling kids, telling graduates, you know, go go really deep on, on something too early um, without expanding some of the horizon, and I do, I do believe, so even if we think about science and technology and maths and so forth, there's also the part of arts and creativity that can come into that, because I think that also helps some of the innovation that you want to see in organisations. So I think that that would be one. Um, and in terms of success, for me, it's, it is around, um, you know, the, the impact that you have um, on other people. And I think all of us are in... Um, in environments or in businesses that can influence change for for an individual or a community, or and I think that that to me is success. It's not the um it's not the monetary value. It is something bigger uh, than that. Um, and I think individuals need to um need to think through that. I remember one mentor of mine um, when I started uh, one of my jobs. He said, "Michael, don't think about the hundred things um that you're going to do." Think about the one or two things. And he said, have you ever been to someone's retirement dinner that have rattled off the hundred things that someone did? No, it's always going to be the one or two things. And that's where the focus then comes back at some point that enables you to really draw your energy to a particular mission that's close to your heart and close to someone else. So that, that would be my measure of success.
2: Oh, That's, that's brilliant. And uh, Michael H, uh, over to you.
5: Well, um, fascinating insights so far, and I totally agree with them. Um, Maybe two slightly different perspectives. Um, When I was a teacher, my first ever, quote, full-time job, um, what made me uh, successful, if I can call it that, as a teacher was not so much the quality of what I taught and how I taught it, although that helps. It was that um, I remember it so well. I spotted a problem in the school And the problem was that children, being typically messy, would deposit lots of litter, crisp packets, cans of Coke, whatever they were doing, Mm -hmm. um, their day-to-day... Sorry, my throat's giving out on me. I'm going to have to go and fix it in a minute. But, But they would deposit their rubbish all over the place. Now, what this would lead to is not just an untidy school environment, but untidy minds in disciplined approaches graffiti on desks on walls broken toilet walls and doors and difficult <coughs> very difficult to get those same kids to engage in believing in the best and the better because what they were seeing was chaotic unresolved mess so i took on the duty i went to the head teacher and i said look this is a terrible place it's so messy The caretakers need to do something about it, but they wouldn't do anything about it because they'd given up. So I decided I'd do something about it. I would go in at uh, half past six, (coughs) seven o'clock in the morning every day and clean the place up. And as a result of me cleaning the place up, getting some of those old granny sticks you pick things up with and getting some bags and cleaning the place up. Then the kids started after a few weeks wanting to join me (coughs) in cleaning things up. And then the caretaker stepped in and they wanted to help to clean the place up. The result of all of that was that all the mess stopped happening. The damage to property stopped happening. And, people, and the kids began to get higher improvement scores in their learning because the environment had changed. So I learned in that process that, for me, my success as a teacher was not so much about the content of my subject, but about the environment that I could create around me that was a benefit to others second point I'd make um, as you know I teach Stephen Covey's seven habits of highly effective people uh, at the Huntsman <coughs> Business School in the US and if I take Habit four which is seek win-win that that is a very important principle of success because success is often defined as what I get that balloons me positions resources recognitions, (coughs) um, aplombs. So (coughs) success is about what's made me look great. But win-win is about how both sides discover the outcome that enables achievement all the way through. So let me take an example of that. Um, For us here in the United Kingdom, it's a big deal that there is (coughs) peace in Northern Ireland. And that had to come about because Ian Paisley and Martin McGuinness, Martin McGuinness was head of Sinn Féin, essentially the IRA. Ian Paisley was the head of the Democratic Unionist Party, um, and, and the Democratic Unionist Party, oh, well, and the Ulster Unionists, the two Democratic Unionist parties, were very much as it were, the Protestant wing, Martin McGuinness on the Catholic wing. This wasn't a religious battle; it was a battle about the identity of Ireland. But instead of having endless wars with each other verbally, they had to find garden space and figure out how they could both win, how they could both win, how they could keep Ireland together with the North and the South, but allow it to express itself to be more of the North and more of the South at the same time. That is what has happened. So changing our dynamic from I will get to we can win together is a great style of success.
2: Beautiful. This is, I feel, a beautiful kind of closing to to my part of the panel. Uh, a very quick question I have to all of you before uh, Jonathan. Then we'll will do the audience Q and A questions. Is you've been extremely generous with your time. Is there anything we can help you with? Is there anything that you're facing at the moment where you know there's a lot of people watching this? There's a lot of things that are out there. Any kind of hooks you want to put out there that you feel should be floating around? Um, Maybe Silvana, starting with you, and then uh, uh, Jonathan, over to you, and thank you so much, Jonathan, for sharing um, for this event and for uh, pulling the strings.
3: I'm so sorry. I, I Can you just cut out for a second for me? What oh, yes, yes, question?
2: yes. Silvana, is there anything, any hooks you would like to put out there, anything we can help you with, given that you've generously donated so much time to us?
3: Oh, that's very kind. Um, well, my company is raising a Series B for expansion. We'd like to build out our model across Bangladesh and scale it. So if anyone knows any investors who are excited about building a groundbreaking healthcare company in emerging markets, then please connect me. Thank you. Excellent.
2: Yes, and excited to work with an amazing individual like yourself, right? So that's kind of a, two great things at once. Um, Ria? I'm
4: very kind. Um uh, we're, we're about to launch our product into the market called Framework. Um, so, just if you see it, uh, please support and cheerlead for us. Um, and I guess just a broader one. Just I think a lot of the themes that we discussed today are just like almost really part of our mission of how do we help more of the world to you know adopt a lot of this serendipity mindset and things. So, just everyone listening on the call to help uh, you know other people make uh, win-win decisions and yeah, connect dots.
2: <laughs> awesome. Thank
0: you, Michael F. Uh, I would say you know you spoke at the beginning about financial inclusion and a lot of the work that we've been doing there um, we've just recently put ESG into our corporate goals and it's part of uh, how we're evaluating employees so if anyone's got feedback or any uh, ideas how we're doing um, and what the view is of, of the brand um, I'd be happy to hear
2: fantastic and and, and great developments of course to, to see that that's at the core of, of what you want to do. Um, thank you, uh, Michael, and what you have been doing, of, of course, for, for quite some time already. Um, and Michael uh, H?
5: Very quickly for me. I am going to have to disappear and sort my throat out. It's in a bad way. <clears throat> it's, it's, it's quite razor sharp. So I could do with some lozenges if anybody has any, I could send them via 5G. That would be really helpful. But the, but the more important point, Christian, which I think is very necessary. I, I talked a bit about about that um, imposter syndrome issue, particularly for people from minority communities when they go into majority countries. And and I could see there being more of an emphasis in your book and on the teaching around your book in helping people from less advantaged communities understand their strengths and then how
2: to connect. Brilliant, perfect. Thank you so much, Michael. And so Jonathan, over to you. Uh,
1: Thank you very much. uh... Christian and thank you so much to everybody on the panel for a really fascinating and remarkable um, discussion. I've got an awful lot of questions to go for and needless to say I have my own questions I would like to ask as well and there's one conceptual one that I want to ask Christian in particular but I will hold myself back because I must get through some of the questions in the uh, Q&A. So I'm going to collect together a number of questions which I think um, come out of this point um that um, michael hastings made about something about self-belief um but to, perhaps a little bit more complicated about that and the fact that for many in the audience this doesn't feel simple um, and especially the relational aspects of it so just to summarize some of these um uh there's something uh, rosemary says about emotions hold you back um you know that, that strong emotional sense holds you back from grasping these, these opportunities. Um, for Kansu, uh, it's uh, reputation uh, is an important point in every kind of relationship, but the thought of reputation often has a limiting effect on me, and I can, I can really empathise with that. I know, I know what you mean. Um, I think there was another one, too. Um, Christina uh, Kumar says... How do you approach a career pivot because it can often feel quite daunting and again there's that idea that uh, our emotions are involved here this is really quite scary what you're suggesting christian that we should we should all be doing um and to to uh, conclude that segment um, obviously this seems to a lot of this seems to advantage extroverts rather than introverts the point made by osnat so i think that's open to the whole panel this sort of question but this feels really scary. Um, there's a lot of emotion involved in this, fear, reputation. Um, have you got any suggestions about that? Is this just a, a realm for the, for the extrovert?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I'm happy to, to take it. And, and then anyone else who wants to chip in, um, uh, that, that's fantastic. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's such a great question, I think. The, the most important thing at the core of this is that at the end of the day, there's there's the, the most important thing is that it feels true to oneself, right? That that you know, one of the key deathbed regrets. There's this wonderful book where a nurse asks people on their deathbeds. Um, what do you regret the most in life? And usually people say, I regret I wasn't true to myself and uh, you know, a lot around meaningful connection to oneself and to others, right? And, and the oneself dimension really being a big one. That's why I'm such a big fan of thinking about the curiosities in the context of what feels comfortable to me. It's not about pushing oneself out there and saying, I'm out there and I'm faking it until I make it. Sometimes that might work, but a lot of times it might just feel inauthentic. And so it's a lot of times saying, "What is it that I actually really feel comfortable about?" And a lot of times serendipity comes from quiet sources, right? From calm sources. It comes from reading a book and and seeing, "Oh my God, this could be a podcast." Things like this. That in a way, there's a lot of scope for for introverts. You know, I'm a closet introvert. So like I'm the kind of person, no problem speaking in front of thousands of people, and then hiding in the restroom because I need to replenish my energy. And so it's kind of in a way. Uh, uh, you know, the the world has been designed for extroverts, right? And we have to somehow survive in in a world designed for extroverts. And so I'm a big fan of two things, actually. One is to think about how can we work with extroverts so that they do some of the things that we don't feel that comfortable about, which is you know, when going to a dinner party, for example, and you have a new book or something, getting the host excited about it, who then talks about it with everyone. Um, so in a way, kind of you have multiplication. I think with social impact, that's always a big one, right? How do you get locals on board who then locally spread the word in some ways that's much more effective than we could ever do it? So I think there's kind of like, how do we collaborate with extroverts? And then On the other hand, I think it's really coming to these questions of what if this is about introversion versus what if this is about learned behaviors? That in a way we can really kind of work on, and and I think there I had a wonderful conversation recently with a psychiatrist who puts their, his patients a little bit into slightly discomforting uh, situations, just in terms of building the muscle for the idea that we don't always have to be absolutely in the comfort zone. And maybe closing on the point, and and you know I don't want to keep the time from from the amazing panelists, so I'll, I'll hand over to whoever wants to go next. But I, I think you know it's it's. Uh, I remember having a colleague actually back at the LSE when when I was uh, teaching there. Amazing a colleague of mine, and you know he came to me and he was like, "Christian, I love your ideas. I love, I love, I love you. But you know, why do I need more serendipity in my life? Like I have a, I have a good job. I have a nice family. Like I don't, I don't need more serendipity." So we made a deal, and we said, "Okay, do a couple of small things differently in your life. Ask slightly different questions. When you get a coffee, um, cast one or two hooks about random things that just are on your mind." And then, you know, when you go to work, take one different street to work and just open your eyes to the bookstore that might have that new book that gets you a new idea, whatever it is. And then let's reconvene in a couple of weeks. He comes back after a couple of weeks and he's like, Christian, I didn't know life can be so joyful. And, you know, to me, that was really the kind of like point where you're saying, yes, like I know, you know, some people might not quote unquote believe in in luck and things like this, but that's the beauty of of, of having science-based frameworks that you can see there's clear patterns. You can train, you can work out that muscle. And as you do it more and more, like looking for money in the street, right? like looking down and seeing the money, once you open your eyes to it, it, it tends to uh, happen more often and and you don't have to be an extrovert for, for that. And so I think um, that's, that's kind of for now. I think there's a lot more in your questions, but I'd love to hand over to Ever Savannah, I see you're uh, your moving. Do you want to, to go next? Or?
3: Yeah, no, I mean, I think the, the, the point on emotions is a really interesting one. I think that... The one thing that our education system, at least least my education system certainly did not teach me, is is the importance of emotional resilience. Um, And I think that when it comes to challenging career pivots or building a company from scratch, I actually think that is arguably the number one most important factor. And so I think the things that we can do to build up our own emotional resilience um, will will make us better prepared. for serendipity and, and for the opportunities that will present themselves in our lives. And that's a challenging thing to do, I think. Um, and, but there is a lot that has been written on it in terms of, you know, creating, creating some structure in your life, creating, you know, healthier habits. Um, but also, you know, I I think mindfulness meditation. I mean, I'm not a big person who meditates, but I do exercise a lot, for example. And so I, I, I think that those things do, help me to stay resilient and, and also help me to stay focused. I think if you're focused on your goal and if, if you feel you're moving in the right direction, um, that does become easier. But I, I think that's a, that's a topic that probably merits the whole other panel discussion. Um, but I, I recognize the challenge of, um, I mean, everything in life ultimately is about emotions and, and that can be positive, but it also can, can present challenges, of course.
0: Yeah, I would build on that. I would say, um, look, I'm an introvert as well, so you're in good company. <laughs> um, and, um, but, I, but I do think, you know, as we've gone through, you know, very difficult circumstances, this notion about um, emotional connection, which Selvana mentioned, um, and vulnerability, you know, quite often in corporate, um, you know, the world, people would see vulnerability as a weakness. And, in fact, we've learned that it's, it's a real strength and what it's done, it's galvanized um, teams much more closer with their leaders because people have shared what they're living through, what they're going through. Um, the fact that, you know, we're in different locations at the moment. Um, I'm in a hotel room, but during the pandemic, people were doing their Zoom calls from the home and you had the, you know, the babies and the dogs and, and all that. All of a sudden, people were in people's own, other, other people's living rooms and homes. And that that never happened before, and I think vulnerability has become um, such an important part. It's it is a leadership capability. I think it's an in, it's an individual um, capability that we need to be comfortable um, sharing um, much more openly because it forges stronger relationships, it deepens friendships, um, and allows you to to move beyond some of the superficiality that we see happening in, in many um, in many team um, situations. So I, I would add uh, that aspect. I think it's a really important part to to drill a bit deeper as well.
4: Maybe I'll, I'll just chip in as well. Um, maybe with a couple of book recommendations, um, given that clearly we've got readers on the line um, that, around both topics that have certainly um, been instrumental for me. So I'm also a closet introvert. So uh, here we all are <laughs> speaking on a panel. So there you go. Um, and uh, I think so Susan Kane, Quiet is a brilliant book, um, and it's really about how do you turn introversion into a superpower into today's world. And I think um, uh, you know we talked a lot about meaningful connections. I actually think introverts are particularly talented at asking questions and developing meaningful connections. So again, reframe. Um, the second around uh, emotional intelligence and how, again, this is such an important superpower for us to each cultivate in today's world. And I think we see way more of it in schools and at a much younger age. Um, a great uh, book on this is a, a book called Emotional Equations, where I think emotional intelligence starts by first understanding what you're feeling. And it is it, a great book that has, has, you know, dozens of emotional equations, an example being uh, Stress, equals uncertainty times powerlessness and you're like okay let me break down like why is the pandemic so stressful because there's so much uncertainty and i'm not in control of it um and so again th- starting with understanding i think is very powerful for me um meditation has been a huge um uh kind of uh, part of my adult life and i find it really interesting the, the coding bootcamp that i talked about where they taught us about growth mindset we also meditated as a collective every day uh, with a chief joy officer. And that was my first introduction to meditation. And so I feel like there's so much for us to do um, at this earlier years in school education that I think could, um, again, prepare our our future generations with with, uh, adaptable mindsets for this world that we're living in.
1: Thank you. Uh, Some really useful advice there and and really useful insights as well. Thank you for that. so uh, moving towards uh, something slightly more political, um, and I'm aware we've only got, got a few moments left, so so perhaps I'll address this question to, to Christian mainly, but if anybody else wants to chip in, please do. It's it's this idea that, well, this is all very well from an individual perspective, but actually we're not really tackling the big structural problems in our society. So I'm going to, to join together two questions here. One is from um, Susan Wolfe, um, who is a retired social historian from the US and pointing out that serendipity was all the story in the US in the 1960s and this idea of individual flourishing and you just had to take your opportunities and at this moment it feels very very different from that that we're very aware of structural oppression that it's not really that simple so so is there an idea that that you're rather uh simplifying things and why actually have you written a book about serendipity now and similarly I think Jolner is making a similar point when he says uh, those who were born during war in less privileged areas, they just can't go far in life, no matter what they do, no matter how they, they grasp these opportunities. So um, Christian, would you like to say a little about that?
2: Yeah, this is a brilliant point. Thank you so much for rating those. And actually it's something that in the book, like very, um, you know, we talk a lot about it because uh, that's a kind of at the, at the absolute core of a lot of our work. Um, so, so I think I look at it from two perspectives. One is the kind of the structural dynamics, to your point, right? There's a lot of structural oppression. In some contexts, it's impossible to have smart luck because you're not given the opportunity. If you're a woman somewhere in a tribe that can't own anything, that can't, like, by law, um, navigate her own destiny in some sense or the other, there's literally kind of the serendipity base level that you could potentially have is is essentially zero no matter what you do um, with your mindset. And so I'm a huge fan of working on those structural constraints. I'm a huge fan of thinking about how do we... Develop the support systems. For example, when we think about education, it's not only about having a scholarship for a less privileged person to go to a great university. It's about having the support system. It's about having mentors. It's about having the kind of people who help you flourish afterwards because otherwise you face the same structural constraint just like a couple of years later again and again and again. And so it's really thinking about the life cycle of people, of society and and, and doing this. So I'm a huge fan of this. This is actually a big part of the book, is thinking about those structural constraints. And I'm a big believer that that has to go hand in hand um, because one of the things why I've seen so over the last kind of 10 15 years I've doing I've been doing a lot of research especially in structurally kind of resource constrained settings right extreme poverty and so on and one of the reasons why development efforts a lot of times fail in those like centralized development efforts that are government driven or company driven is that they don't give people the agency to create their own luck. And that actually takes away the kind of feeling of dignity that a lot of them want to feel. And that's why I'm saying it's so um, important to, to have that play hand in hand. To give you an example, when I started working in, in South Africa in the Cape Flats in Cape Town, where you know people, um, uh, I walked in and I asked, like, what should I, as the white person coming into your context, what should I never ask you? What's something that everyone asks you here, um, kind of who comes into your context and wants to quote unquote help? Uh, but 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 that you really don't like that question. And essentially the answer was, by now a very good friend of mine, never ask me what I need first, because if you ask me what I need, you put me into the role of the victim, the beneficiary, someone who, who who relies on your benevolence as the kind of great person who solves my problems, but then I feel really bad. I feel I can't care for my children myself. I feel I have failed as a father or as a mother. And so it's these kind of things where I think, yes, by any means, we have to think about structural constraints, But real change happens on the level of the individual because someone wants to create their own luck. They don't want to have the UN step in and say, here's a a care package for you, and then you feel you failed as a father or as a mother. And so I think in in, in this organization that I highly recommend checking out, uh, Reconstructed Living Labs, they're extremely good at this. They're touching hundreds of thousands of people by essentially not going into a context and asking, what do you need? But they go into a context and they say, what's already here? How can we make the best of it? And then how can we at the same time work on structural constraints? And when you do this, you look at a former drug dealer and you don't see a former drug dealer. You see a potential teacher who is amazingly resourceful, who has amazing social capital. And if you can turn that person into a teacher, um, then you can turn a community around. And so I'm a huge believer that this is not an either or question, but that is actually a kind of self-reinforcing dynamic that if we get it right... That mindset with policymakers who can remove those structural constraints and with, with society and with individuals, that's actually where the magic bullet is versus like seeing that as two disconnected things.
1: Thank you, Christian. Yes, I mean, that. that's a very, very eloquent response to that. And uh, it's very interesting what you're saying, I think, mirrors a certain movement in tone in the social entre- entrepreneurship and charity sectors where there's now much more in the more enlightened parts of those sectors, emphasis on increasing agency and power in those they're trying to help, rather than simply saying, what can we do to you? Uh, and uh, I think that's a very hopeful development that you've um, you've spoken extremely eloquently about there. Very sadly, we are we are out of time. Um, so my deep apologies to those whose questions I have not been able to, to uh, represent. My deep thanks go to um, all our panelists tonight, to uh, Michael Hastings, we wish him well with his, uh, with his cough, uh, Michael Fracaro, Pavara Pabari and Silvana Sina. We're so grateful to you for spending some time sharing your serendipity journeys with us. It's been so insightful. Uh, most of all, a very deep thanks to Christian Bush for writing this remarkable book and being willing to come to talk to us uh, about it. Thank you to all of you for your really great questions and for joining us tonight. I wish you good night and good luck.
0: Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.